probably the biggest thing I I noted was I wish I was listening to Harry Belafonte sing this song. Mm. Yeah. Yes, as a calypso song. Yeah. This is much better. I'm I'm picturing it in my head right now. You know, yeah. my note on this is I wish I wasn't thinking of my grandparents smashing into this song. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and musicians pick an album from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die to break down, analyze, discuss, and complain about. This week, we will be talking about Elvis Presley's very first full-length release, self-titled Elvis Presley. Very excited to get into it with you chaps, but before we do, I want to go to the old listener mailbag first and foremost. Which is quickly becoming my favorite part of the show. <laughs> I love the listener mailbag. This is great. Hold your comments until you hear what the, the oh, email is. Yeah, actually, right? <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll pump the brakes. I have a feeling you guys are going to like this. We have a oh, Rob right. was wrong email in the, in yeah. the bag. Oh, oh. Read it loud and proud, my friend. I forget what fake name I used to write this email around. <laughs> I saw everyone's Demetrius? ears perked up now. Everyone's awake now. Demetrius Chaselbottom. So listener, listener Terry from Omaha says, On the Randy Newman episode, one of you, it was me, said that Bobby Darren recorded Runaround Sue. That was just plain wrong. You're thinking oh. of Dion. Bobby Darren had a lot of hits, including the mentioned Splish Splash, but he's perhaps most known for his version of Mac the Knife. Ah. So you're right, Terry. I flubbed on that one. He's Beyond the Sea, right? Bobby Darren was also the Beyond the Sea guy? That is also correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah had, a, had, a, had a lot of hits, did a lot of jazz standards, but I, I was thinking of Dion. That was my bad. I had no idea. For a guy who's probably sung Run Around Sue a hundred thousand times to not know it was by dion thank you uh, our friend from omaha you guys used to cover run around sue yeah i was i was i was wondering about that too Tom. i'm glad you interjected Dep- so as a cover band you're you're a chameleon right mm-hmm. i can't tell you the number of weddings we've played where the 90 year old grandmother comes up can you play run around sue you look over at the bride and groom and they're like yeah give granny your moment in the sun so you do run around sue so like you're saying box. Granny was a tramp back in the day, running around <laughs> all over the place? <laughs> this song was written about me. Grandmom, Jesus. It's a great tune, for the record, but okay. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then we have one more here. Listener Sarah coming to us all the way from Bristol, I believe in the oh, UK. Wow. says, love what you guys are doing here. Really enjoyed the Metallica Black Album episode, the self-titled Metallica album, where you guys broke down how and why the songs rocked. I've never understood why that record gets so much pushback from fans. It's great. Keep up the good work, boyos. Nice. Alrighty. So, love hearing from you all. Please keep sending us that lister mail over at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Tell us where we're wrong. We started this podcast to learn. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. And tell us where you're writing from. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, ready to dive right in to 
the king of rock, Elvis Presley. Just to get us all situated, I suggest we play just a little snippet of the opening track from his very first full-length release here. It's called Blue Suede Shoes. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now, go, can't go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but then be over my blue suede shoes. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place. Well, do anything that you want to do, but not, uh, honey, lay off the blue shoes. And don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoes. Let's go, Ken! Hey, and as we always do here on the program, I'd love to introduce the folks that are here in the studio with us by briefly going around the room and hearing a tweet-length review. What was your experience like? Where are you coming from on this album? We're going to throw it first to Tom. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. This is Tom. I have a very short tweet-length review for you today, okay? Is it country? Is it rock? No. <laughs> okay. That's very, yeah, very short, succinct, pithy, maybe. All right, this is Adam, uh, and I'm sure I'll be proven wrong as I learn more about the history of this album, but my initial review is Elvis Presley, and I assume a team of producers and A&R guys tweak all the knobs, hoping to find something that sticks and then run with it. Spoiler alert, they succeeded. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. I did a fair amount of research for this, but my this is Rob here, and my quick review is looking to understand the beginnings of what quickly became a worldwide cultural phenomenon. Elvis's first record pops with energy and has plenty of lip snarling, but leaves out the most important pieces of the puzzle. Ooh. Yeah, are you right. talking about Elvis's hips? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> they are pictured on the cover, actually. And yeah. the cover is one of the best things about it. Let's just kick right in. That's a great, iconic cover, an action shot with a cool color scheme that's very memorable. If you look at the rest of the covers of this guy, they all they almost all pictured him as well. But they never re, re-reached that iconic status of his his look and his action, I think. It's an yeah, it's an action shot, and if you if you're just listening and not seeing the album, it's bright pink. Elvis is written in, and then this kind of bright green Presley. It's just a real standout standout album for for a black and white era as well. And he looks like he is wailing, yeah, both on the guitar and f- like physically wailing with his voice. It looks like he's hammering that guitar and really belting it out. And I kind of wonder what song that was on on this album. <laughs> what song was he really giving it both on double barrels on you know right. the screaming and the and the playing? <laughs> so let's get into it with a little background. And I think we're all approaching this from approximately the same position of not really knowing too much about Elvis's legacy. We're all big music fans, big rock and roll fans. Huge Lilo and Stitch fan, of course. Yes. <laughs> and of course, I don't even understand what you mean by that, Tom. <laughs> Lilo and Stitch, that uh, that Disney movie, the Disney entire movie? soundtrack is all Elvis songs. She's really oh, into really? Elvis. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Didn't yeah. know that. I wouldn't. I haven't seen that one. But 
preparing for this conversation, I was excited to dive in because I want to know more about Elvis. You know, of course, I'm, we're aware of his his hits and things like that. As anyone, how could you be alive and not know some Elvis songs and know what kind of what he looks like and et cetera. But uh, I, what I did was this week I went ahead and read a biography called Last Train to Memphis that was all about the early years of Elvis, kind of his rise and included the recording of this album. So I'll be citing that quite a bit, just throw that out there. But let's get into a little background. So Elvis is originally from Tupelo, Mississippi, but he moved to Memphis, Tennessee at about age 10. He, was, his, he and his family were poor. They moved into public housing in, in Memphis. This is just a weird little fact that maybe people don't know he had a twin brother who was stillborn wow so he's kind of okay. technically a twin but he's always maybe been a little bit out of sorts reaching for that brother he didn't have and just to illustrate the fact that the family truly was kind of poor and maybe it was sort of a different time in the world his dad actually went to jail for almost a year when he was a kid for passing a four dollar bad check oh <laughs> jail yeah yeah, Kiting checks for under five dollars. That is, that's that's an so impressive. Like, that's like four dollars. That means that it was basically like every three months, it was a dollar's worth of like you know, for every <laughs> dollar you got three months in jail. That's pretty intense. S- something like that. Something like that. So he is. He's kind of an insecure, quiet kid. He's very close to his mother, possibly because he spent that year with with only her. And the family, you know, they were a relatively tight unit, but particularly he was close with his mother. People called him vulnerable and... And, and sort of shy until he hit the stage when he obviously had this electric stage persona that people responded to, right? But the most seminal event in his life and another personality in the rock and roll canon that Elvis's story interweaves with is a guy called Sam Phillips. So Sam Phillips is a good 10 plus years older than Elvis. He's probably in his early 30s when Elvis is about 18 and Sam Phillips is running a studio in Memphis called Sun, or the I can't recall exactly what the studio was called. It was called something bland, like Memphis Sound Recording. But he, at that point, had started his own record label called Sun Records. And so Sam Phillips' background is quite interesting. He is actually the architect of a lot of what you would call early rock and roll because he worked in radio back in the 40s and then later as a recording engineer and recorded tons of people at this his historic, uh, this historic studio before he had the label. So he recorded people like Howlin' Wolf, BB King, and you know later obviously Elvis, and then other people like Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis uh, were all part of uh, the Sun kind of recording family. Family, but he got really well versed in recording, and particularly in recording black artists and white artists, which was really uncommon at the time. And, wow. And so one of his things was that he was he was a little forward thinking for his time as a southerner as a white southerner at the time. He really believed in this concept of the American dream and that music specifically was a path for racial integration, right? And prosperity for everyone. And so when he, you know, he broke from he he basically decided to start his own label and set up shop in that exact same studio where he'd already recorded a lot of guys. And the premise of the recording studio was, hey, I'll record anyone and everything. Anyone, anytime, anything, right? And this was extremely, extremely anti-establishment for Memphis in the early 1950s. You got to keep in mind that even at this time, the radio stations were segregated, right? White stations didn't play black artists. Black stations didn't play white artists. And 
perhaps a more cynical way of putting this, because he is quoted perhaps apocryphally as saying this at some point, but Sam Phillips at one point said, if I can just find a white guy who sounds like a black guy, I'll make a million dollars. Wow. So Elvis hooks up with this guy. He's hanging around the studio. He, it's already kind of a historic place in Memphis, even at that time, because these, these blues guys were recording there. And Elvis, one of the things that impressed Sam, even though he's kind of a young guy and he wasn't blown away by his musical talent exactly right away, but he did notice that Elvis had this really encyclopedic knowledge of songs he had learned from the radio, both black and white artists' recordings. And eventually convinces him to get in there and he plays That's All Right Mama, which was originally recorded by a black artist something like seven years before. And Sam immediately hears, hey, this is something new. And they cut that record. They put it out as a single. And that is Elvis's first single. They ship copies all over the South. Right. It's it becomes uh, it becomes it's where Elvis starts to become a hit. Right. It becomes a big local hit and then it spreads throughout the South. Well, it's, it is a little funny that the flashpoint of this is something new. And the new thing is just that it's a white guy singing a black guy song. They're like, this is something new. This song that was recorded three years ago. This is something new. <laughs> you know, like I understand different times. Clearly Memphis in the fifties was not the most progressive place in the world, but it actually sounds like this guy particularly was pretty progressive, but you know, it is, I can see why Elvis gets a little bit of hate for, you know, people say that he steals black music and, basically turns it into money that should have gone to those black artists. What's that famous? It's from the public enemy song, fight the power. There's the line in there. Where he says, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. Straight up racist. That sucker was simple and plain motherfuck him and John Wayne. Like that's a, a very famous line, which as a huge fan of Westerns, I have to say, fuck John Wayne. He was a piece of shit. I don't necessarily feel that way about Elvis, but I can see why people would have felt that way. I'm sure if you were to ask a lot of those black artists, they'd probably be like, well, I actually made money off of that. So I was totally yeah. fine with it. It's not like, you know, I, it wasn't stolen from me. It was just, you know, I got royalties paid to me. You're right. We got to, we got to deal with this right off the bat, which is, you know, where does this, a couple pieces of context that I think to, to add to what you just said, Tom, one is at the time, this idea of covering material from across, you know, multiple artists taking one song and covering it was so, so, so common. And it continued to be common. And so, and that's, I don't necessarily think that's stealing in this direct sense. For instance, we're going to find out, right, that Carl Perkins recorded, he's the writer of the song Blue Suede Shoes. He had recorded and released this as a single within, I don't know, two months of when Elvis went in and recorded it. Which is a little bit, it sounds like a little bit of a boosh, because they were supposedly friends, they had toured together, and Elvis kind of, now, in people's hearts and minds, I think kind of owns the song, but it was it was extremely common, and part of the reason for that was just to try to get as much coverage of the mm-hmm. record-buying public as humanly possible. Yeah, there are a couple tunes on here that I noticed uh, Julie London covered them. So you're talking like a, a, a woman crooner from the 50s is doing versions of some of these songs that are on this album. So, yeah. Rob, to your point, it's like, well, here's your country version and, and you've got maybe the, the quote unquote black version. Now here, let's do the smooth, you know, pre-Sinatra version by a woman. 
Yes. And so we're going to we're going to be talking about that through the lens of the individual songs for sure. And the state of kind of songwriting and how that made it into artist repertoire at the time through these individual songs. But second is, and you alluded to this, Tom, but there's definitely a case to be made that that he helped birth a new, you know, he made a lot of people a lot of money, including a lot of black artists by helping to popularize and effectively integrate music. And you could argue, even though we might not like how it was done or the state that music was in or pop culture was in sort of before that happened, and perhaps Elvis did suck up too much of the percentage of the ultimately the money, somebody had to be that crossover artist, right? It was kind of only a matter of time. And the question of whether or not it was going to be a white artist crossing over to black audiences or vice versa, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious which one of those it was likely to be. Sure. I mean, and again, talk about the times. This is ni- early 1950s Tennessee. Like a lot of black people couldn't vote back then. So it's not like where they were, he was taking away the, uh, like opportunities that were just there for the taking for them. And he just reached in and snatched it. Like it was never coming. There was, there was yeah. a lot of problems systemically there. And, and so because it was so segregated, he was really, so I'll just say, you know, based on this biography I read and other things I sort of heard about Elvis, I'm, I'm no expert, but you do not get the sense from anybody that he, he, you get the sense that he was an extremely progressive person himself and that what he thought he was, he was trying to do was pay homage to these records that he liked. He loved blues records. He loved Howlin' Wolf. He loved Big uh, Arthur Big Boy Crudup, the guy who originally recorded, uh, wrote and recorded That's All Right Mama. And he was bringing them to a brand new audience because ultimately the first place that these singles got played was on the country radio stations, the white country radio stations. So I think that's also contextual for what we talk about with it being new. What they really mean is they took, they went from country and they just bluesed and rocked it up just a tiny bit. And that was their version of what was new. I think you can definitely point to some songs that were recorded before this that sound more like what we would call rock and roll. So stuff like Rocket 88, which actually has Ike Turner playing piano, which I didn't know. Just slapping those keys. <laughs> it's got... Exactly. Exactly. Some people cite that as the first rock and roll song, partly because it has like the, one of the first fuzz bass things on it. But, you know, Maybelline by Chuck Berry. Actually, Maybelline by Chuck Berry. I'm sorry. That came out after That's All Right, Mama. But there was, there was a lot of stuff happening, is my point. And you could make arguments about where things happen. I wanted to give you guys a quick timeline, though, of what was going on in the music industry at this time, because I found this interesting. Because a lot of things happen in quick succession. And a lot of things we might take for granted now were still very new at the time. So I wanted to point out, in 1948 is the first time the 33 and a third LP premiered. So that's 48. It's only a couple years before this happened. Then in 49 was when the 45 RPM LP, EP premiered. Right Before that, it was 100% 78s. And this is when they were invented. Right, They still had to get some time to become... Uh, more popular. And so that happened over time. The 45 really took off first because it was what they put in jukeboxes around the country. And Uh, it's one of the reasons. Yeah. You already have the infrastructure to print those. So just print more of them. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons singles sold so well, you know, better than, than full albums in spring of 1954. This is like basically right before that first Elvis recording. And, and what you're going to find, by the way, on this record that we listened to is that some of these recordings were taken from those 1954 sessions at Sun. 
like cherry picked from that time, and some were done about 18 months later at RCA when he picked up a new contract. That's really interesting, and I, I I'll I'll be interested to see which or which because yeah, I feel like there totally. are different sounds, different totally. voices. Yes. You know, he's trying some different stuff. Yeah, and so I'll, I'm very interested then. Yeah, and very different production styles on that too, which we'll get into in a moment. But I wanted to mention that it was only spring of 1954, very shortly before the first of these sessions, that the Stratocaster even debuted. We're all right. We're talking wow. about the very beginning of solid body guitars. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, I was looking up number one song in the country when this was released, just to get an idea of it. And one of the things that I actually found to be really interesting is that they have two separate categories. One is sold in stores and one is played in jukeboxes. Yeah. So that's like how ubiquitous that format was it was that you go to the the soda fountain and the malt shop yeah the malt yeah. shop and you play yourself a uh 45 on the jukebox but by the way uh the number one song uh when this album came out is lisbon antigua it's like some orchestral piece it is absolutely oh, wow. not in any way shape or form rock and roll at all well, one of, one of the things I found, too, is that there were multiple charts. And so one of the things that Elvis did was he charted across country, pop, and the R&B charts. Because at those time, I think those were the three types of charts they had. The R&B charts were primarily for blues artists and black artists. The country were is dominated all, all by white artists, obviously. And so when he started releasing records, you started to see him charting across all those spaces. And that's part of what made him such a phenomenon. But let's let's get into talking about this specific record. So it was released on March 13th, 1956. It's his first full-length release, but he had already had kind of a string of hit singles. And one of the first and weirdest things about this record is that the his most popular songs of the time are not included on it. Right? So it's almost the opposite okay. of how you would yeah. expect it of to be debut. working. Yeah. Yes. Because even what Tom said last week, he postulated, oh, maybe this is a collection of singles. It's actually the complete opposite. It purposely leaves off his singles. So you have to go buy them That's, as singles? Yeah. Also because people had already bought them. I, okay, I'm not sure yeah, exactly yeah. why they did it that way, but that was sort of the thinking, is that they had already released right in the same sessions that he recorded this. He recorded Heartbreak Hotel, which was his big breakthrough first yeah. number one single. So he recorded at the same time as these other songs, but they released it as a single. It sold like 2 million copies. This record only ended up selling like 300,000 copies, at least in its first run. So That's crazy. the story, right, is that this his first record is this huge success, but part of the challenge is that people just weren't buying full-length LPs at the time. And so the single was the best way to get it to the kids. Now, I still don't really understand, and I couldn't really get an answer to why they didn't just include it anyway, the most popular song on the LP, because that feels like what record... It's not like they ran out of space, right? Like they're, they're, They definitely didn't run out of space. This is not a long album. There's plenty of space to throw more songs on this one. This album, for our listeners, comes clocks in at 28 minutes. Yeah. Like, if you really, really pushed it, you could maybe fit that on one half of an LP, like one yeah. half of a 33 and a 30. Totally. You'd run into some fidelity issues and whatnot, but like you could make it happen. It would not be advisable, but you could have a whole other side. Yeah, and the weird thing is they were scraping. So the the history of this, right, is that he's with Sun for a while. He produces, they record a bunch, and that's why they were able to cherry pick some of these recordings later. Then he goes out on tour, but he's not really touring nationally yet. He's touring all these, forgive me, 
South, you know, like podunk kind of places, small towns, country audiences, but he's building up speed kind of around the South and he's playing with people like a young Johnny Cash. And by the way, Johnny Cash is one of the one of the artists who heard that first son recording of That's All Right Mama and was like, yo, I'm going to Memphis. I'm recording there. And so, like, one of the very next singles that Sun released ended up being Folsom Prison Blues, which I thought was a cool story. Huh. Nice. nice. It's funny to think that they were that contemporary. I would have thought the Folsom Prison Blues came later. No, only uh, within, I think, about a year of, of That's All Right Mama coming out. And Johnny Cash was touring back then and all that stuff. But, yeah, it gets confusing when some of these people have had such long careers. Like, also, they were talking about how B.B. King had recorded in this studio, and that's one of the reasons Elvis was excited about it. And I was like, how old can B.B. King how be? How old is Ben? <laughs> yeah. But it's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. So I thought we'd do a quick, we haven't done in a while, but it's Elvis by the numbers, because this is one of the most impressive music uh, personalities ever, right? So he's considered the best-selling solo artist in the world by the Guinness Book of World Records. He sold over 500 million records worldwide. That's entering Shania Twain territory. (laughs) (laughs) He he has starred in 31 feature films. None of which I've seen, by the way. (laughs) He's had 149 songs hit the Billboard Top 100. And he's had 18 go to number one. But for Adam's sake in particular, I did check. The Beatles had 20 go to number one. All right. Thank you. Something is right about the world. (laughs) (laughs) There's like a a deleted scene from Pulp Fiction where... Mia Wallace is talking to uh, Vincent Vega, and she's saying, like, are you an Elvis man or a Beatles man? Like, that's the two types of men in the world. You're either an Elvis man or a Beatles man. She's like, you're obviously an Elvis man, but, like, you know, that that's the dichotomy in the world, Elvis man or Beatles man. I've always been a Beatles man, so I know where I fall on that, but I, I see the allure of the Elvis man. And there's one thing, before we start jumping into any particulars in the song, that I feel... It would be misogynistic of me to not bring it up because we brought it up before with female artists, but Elvis was a goddamn dreamboat. He is a really good-looking guy, and that definitely did not hurt his album sales at all. Young Elvis was a goddamn smoke show, and good on him. (laughs) Um, I can imagine – I can see why young – girls looked at him and he had a little bit of danger about him and he had that swagger and he's got that voice that's kind of deep but also kind of sultry like yeah yeah he's a sexy dude well he was the first rock star right i mean it like is that is that a a safe a safe statement that he was probably the first bona fide rock star this was beatlemania pre-beatlemania this no one had ever seen anything like the amount of screaming and devotion that people would bring to his concerts. Like there was literally an anecdote where he went to the theater, to the movie with his girl or something. And then 20 minutes into the movie, the police had to come in and say, Hey man, like the fans are like outside tearing your car apart right now. (laughs) (laughs) And by fans, I mean, 15 year old girls. Right. And you need to get out of here. We need to take you out through the back way and like, you know, move your car and all this stuff. Yeah, you need to take your your girlfriend, who might also have been fifteen at the time, because wasn't that a thing where uh, I Oof, I actually don't yeah. know how young Lisa Marie was when they got together, but I'm pretty sure she was real young. You're talking like, about Priscilla, like, uh, Priscilla, Lisa. But that, this, so this yeah, was Priscilla. later. So my understanding is that he dated pretty age appropriate people from from this time period of being you know 18 to about 24. But I think later, this you know he he released this record when he was about 20. 
so it wasn't until significantly later that he met up with Priscilla, and yeah, I believe she was 14 or 15 when they met up. Yeah. So, not cool. Different times, but even for different times. But even still, that, yeah. Still weird. But but speaking of Elvis's sort of sex appeal, you're, you're totally right, right? He was extremely handsome. They said he had this innocent but impudent look that really just drove people crazy. The hair and the moves. Before we jump into the songs, I just wanted to give you a taste of what people were saying about him. You know, the, the reviews, right, that were out there. Uh, apparently there was one review published where literally the entire text of the review was music question mark (laughs) (laughs) wow all right that was an old curmudgeon the the new york times published a review and this is a quote from it appalling if television networks would stop putting this trash on the elvis presley's of the world would go away (laughs) he was Newsweek said he's like a jug of corn liquor at a champagne party. <laughs> Thought that had a nice ring to it. Yeah, man, it sounds okay to me. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's not too bad. And and just because just because this is a little bit of a local school reference, he played a concert in Villanova around this time and was pelted with eggs. Really? Wow. Yeah. So the Northerners hated him, or was that the uh, the League of of Women or your whatever it is? Might have been the nuns uh, at the Villanova Convent or something. It's Catholic school. (laughs) I'm not sure, but they really were up in arms. It's hard to imagine now, but just his literally just his hit movements, and maybe even some of the salacious nature of some of the songs, which don't even read as salacious now, of course. Scandalous. Were considered akin to burlesque shows. It was really considered obscene by a lot of the you know. There's a lot of pearl clutching at this time. So you're telling me that people like prepared to go and pelt him with eggs it's not like they just found a clutch of eggs while they were at the show right. they're like let's keep these by the radiator for about 48 hours before we go down there and pelt him uh, yeah. everybody have their egg yes sister susan <laughs> <laughs> so that's good so yeah, definitely, but definitely a phenomenon. They say from the time he released That's All Right Mama to basically when Heartbreak Hotel came out, it was only about 18 months, and there was a lot of touring and getting his band tighter in that time, you know, forming a band and getting them tighter in that time. But, but basically, by the time Heartbreak Hotel came out, he had nat- nationwide success on a scale of which they had not seen before. And by the way, we haven't even talked about Colonel Tom Parker yet, but we'll get into it because he's an interesting character, too. Let's dive into the songs. Let's go back and revisit. I don't even know if we can revisit it because it's only like two minutes long. The song right, you may have played the the entirety of it. All these songs are quite short. Uh, Blue suede shoes. Uh, this was one of the ones recorded for RCA in January of 1956. Blue suede shoes. Burn my house, steal my car, drink my liquor from an old fruit jar. Well, do anything that you wanna do, but uh, uh, honey, lay off of my shoes and don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoes. Rock it. the money, living for the show, three to get ready now, go, 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 but don't you, step on my blue suede shoe, 
Well, you can do anything but the devil for my blue suede shoes. Well, it's blue, blue, blue suede shoes. Blue, blue, blue suede shoes. Yeah! Blue, blue, blue suede shoes, baby. Blue, blue, blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but the hope for my blue suede shoes. You know, my, my first note on this is that this still sounds kind of modern. Like, it didn't sound as antiquated as I thought it was going to. Like, I could see, a like, a throwback band, like a J.D. McPherson or something, like, doing a song almost exactly like this and being like, oh, this kind of rips. Yeah, I can get down with this. Because this song does kind of rip. It's It's... Overall, I know I'd heard it a million times, and when I heard it, I was still pl- uh, pleasantly surprised. I was still pleased to hear it. I had in my mind, similar to you, Tom, like, well, this is going to be an album of jug band stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why, but I just figured, well, he's a Southern boy. It's the fifties. There's going to be that weird mouth harp thing. I don't know why I was just thinking like old school, you know, uh, a whiskey redneck, but. Sure. Yeah, this this is a hip tune, man. This is the birth of rock and roll. That's really what I think of. Because w- did Jerry Lee Lewis also do a version of this? Uh, I, Shoes? I think you're thinking of Carl Perkins, who is the author of it. Okay, got it. All right. Um, yeah, this this is just yeah, remarkably hip, and it it kind of rocks for for what it is. Yeah, I agree. It sounds fresh. There's a lot of energy on the tape there. So we should point out that all this stuff back in the day was recorded live. There's very little studio trickery going on. In fact, in at Sun, this was recorded at RCA, a more modern and expensive studio. But even there, it was really just guys in a room with a couple mics. And if you want your volume to go lower, you got to step away from the mic kind of thing, right? So the band just sort of has to get the take. But... In, at Sun, like there was none of that. There was no baffling on the walls. There was bleed coming into the control room, <laughs> everything. And so they. All, the other thing is that the way Elvis liked to work is he didn't come in with pre-existing notions of even what he was going to play. They would just run through kind of this songbook, partially from his encyclopedic knowledge of what he heard on the radio and what he enjoyed. And partially, you know, the producer or whatever would be suggesting things. And they go, oh, okay, what are the chords of that? And they try to work it out. So what it meant was they ended up taking a longer time with stuff. But they were trying to find not only... They were really trying to find songs that worked for them. And and also had this kind of like newness to them. Now, I do think this song is a good example. It works for them. I think he owns the song. But I will say that it's kind of an unnecessary cover in that it doesn't... It does not change the arrangement at all. So I think it's a little bit of a boosh. He was friends with Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins was at his old label, Son. So it was kind of both a boosh to Carl Perkins and to Sam Phillips, who had just who was trying to build up his roster after losing Elvis. So we, sh- we should talk about that, right? So when Elvis first started recording, he was working with Sam Phillips at Sun Records, and he was having success with stuff like That's All Right, Mama. But... Ultimately, like it was starting to get too big for Sun Records to really be able to manage it. They were kind of victims of their own success. They couldn't keep up with the demand for these records. And at some point out there on the road, Elvis hooks up with this guy called Colonel Tom Parker. Now, he is an honorary colonel bestowed upon him <laughs> by the governor of by Louisiana the <laughs> for helping him win a political campaign. This guy is shady. <laughs> Is this the character that Homer's 
a manager in The Simpsons is based off that's of... That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, thank you. Which is sad that my extent of Elvis knowledge comes <laughs> comes from a 1990s cartoon show. This guy was a basically a con man who who wormed his way over to Elvis but was very he was a very successful negotiator and the line they gave Elvis kind of right at their meeting was like hook up with this guy he'll make you a million dollars but rest assured he'll be taking half of that money that was the kind of guy he was and he ultimately he controlled Elvis's career he controlled how much he was exposed to the public to a certain extent what songs he did who he dated or who he was said to be dating what movies he starred in like all the way down to elements of his personal life for the next 20 years. So they had a really interesting relationship. This guy, his background I thought was interesting is he told everyone he was from West Virginia because he had like a really weird accent. He's actually Dutch and immigrated illegally to the United States. (laughs) Now, I love how small the U.S. is at this point that you just hear another accent that's blatantly from Europe. And he's like, I'm from West Virginia. (laughs) Oh, well, he must be from West Virginia. So he grew up when he was in the Netherlands. His job, he was a carny. So he learned. (laughs) This gets better and better. He learned how to trick people, basically. He learned all the tricks (laughs) of the trade. Yeah, right. The ring toss game. Yeah. Oh, wow. Exactly. So he was a real bulldog negotiator. So anyway, so Elvis hooked up with him. And, you know, this guy was admittedly helping Elvis grow his career. But ultimately, he he played two sides off each other and got RCA to pay to buy out his contract from Sun for what was at the time the highest any recording artist had ever been paid. I think it was $35,000 to take it away from Sam Phillips and give it over to RCA, which was perhaps the biggest record company in the world or one of the two biggest, RCA and Columbia probably at the time. But keep in mind that Carl Perkins had released his version. He's the writer of the song. And they had toured together extensively, so Elvis definitely heard it from him, like, live next to him, standing next to the stage. And it was on his old record label, and they were trying to sell it as a single, and Elvis kind of comes in. He makes it better, but I'm just saying it's a little bit a little bit uncool. Now, the concession was that they wouldn't release Elvis's version as a single, which they didn't, technically, right? And that's why it's on this record, because remember that there are no singles oh, on this record. okay, okay. Which is confusing. And yet, he's still known for the song. That's crazy, man. Wow. All right. You know, listen, I hate to keep harping on it, but when you're that damn good looking, you can get away with a lot. (laughs) You know, you can sort of be like, listen, I know that there are, you know, my version is a little bit better, but they're essentially the same thing. But I mean, are 14-year-old girls ripping your car apart when you go to a movie? I don't think so, buddy. I don't think so. (laughs) Not even close. And he continued that. I was just kicking around trying to find a live version of this song. And one came up from 1968 where he looks like a freaking badass. He's in like a leather jacket with no shirt and it's opened up and he's just got an acoustic guitar. He is awesome. Like total rock star. So, yeah, we're not going to go too deep into the the back half of Elvis's life. But interestingly, he did when he died, he was the same age as I am right now, which is a little chilling. But um, but what happened was he had this he had I'm not you know watch out for the bathroom today he had this meteoric rise to fame in his in his twenties and this was in the fifties and then he kind of one of the weirdest things about him is that he got drafted into the army 
And instead of asking for some kind of special dispensation, which a lot of people told him he should do to not go to boot camp and do have regular military service, he just went through with it and effectively disappeared from the public eye for a couple years. And that might be part of why in the 60s you saw a gradual decline in his career. He continued to star in movies, but they kind of got worse and worse and worse until ultimately he launched a comeback career in 1968. So I bet that's what you saw some That's of. what it was, yeah. The word comeback was definitely in the title. And I think he had an, another moment there. He had some more hits and things like that, and that eventually led to his Vegas residency and the sort of chubbier version of Elvis and ultimately his untimely death. But Was he like deputized or something like that as like a DEA agent or something by Richard Nixon so that he could, at, at the same time as having a massive pill problem, but he was like, those dope smoking hippies. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely possible. Definitely possible. All right. Let's, uh, let, let's keep a rolling here. The next song on our list is called One-Sided Love Affair. But you were got to love for me too If you wanna be loved But hey, but you got to love for me too Oh yeah, cause I ain't the for no one-sided love affair If you wanna be kissed But like you were got to kiss me too Oh yeah, if you wanna be kissed Well, you were got to kiss me too Oh yeah, cause I ain't for no one-sided love affair well, a fair exchange of bends and over robbery And the whole world will know that it's true Understanding solves all problems, baby That's why I'm telling you If you wanna be hugged Well, you will got to hug me too Oh, yeah If you wanna be hugged Well, you got to hug me too Oh, yeah Cause I ain't for no one-sided love affair So the same thing I complain about with modern pop singers, which is they're trying to find their voice and they're doing weird affectations. Nothing has changed in 75 years. <laughs> they were doing the same the same thing back then where I feel like this was I mentioned, you know, turning the knobs in my little opening tweet there. But I feel like there are aspects of this album where they're just saying, all right, well, try a song like this. And then we'll see if it works. And now try a song like this and we'll see if it works. And and this was the one that was probably stood out uh, as the most egregious vocal attempt of being distinct. Like he, it's like he took his own Elvis knob and cranked yeah, it. Yeah, he sounds like an Elvis impersonator. I totally yeah. agree. <laughs> this is my favorite song on the album. I like this song a lot. But you are so right. He is very much like... So Elvis has a distinct singing style it's what makes him easy to emulate what makes it easy to do an elvis impression but it's very like bottom of the mouth that kind of hong 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 that he sort of does it's like bottom of the mouth and he really dials it up to 11 on this one but i want to point out i've talked about this band before and i i think i've actually talked about this particular song by the band there's a song by the band the jubileros called noah and listening to this i i was like oh he must have been familiar with that song and he is doing an impression of the guy the lead singer of the jubilaires because it's kind of oh. that kind of like throwing in the extra syllables and hummaha and hummaha and hummaha yeah it's it's very much a i i took it as a we call it an homage or a ripoff whichever one you want to say of that sort of early style 
Yeah, I, I I buy that. And actually, it's funny because the group he was the background vocal group he was working with on some of these recordings is called the Jordanaires, and I almost got them yeah. confused. But rest assured, <laughs> they are very yeah. white. Yes, yes, yeah. I actually the Jordanaires didn't they show up on um, Loretta Lynn? Loretta Lynn, yeah. Yes, they showed up on they Loretta were the Lynn backing album. vocals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. White as the driven snow. Yes. <laughs> I just love, I love the innocence of these lyrics. If you want to be hugged, you got to hug me too. <laughs> you got to hug me too. <laughs> Rob, I think my favorite part about this episode so far is you throwing in the hug uh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I love at the end of the song when he gets really like mush mouth with it. He's like, oh, I, don't want I love it so much. It's so good. <laughs> So I forgot to mention who's actually playing on these tracks, because actually one of the things I noted on this song is I think the piano is pretty cool. I like Yes. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think it has some nice interplay with the guitar where it kind of quiets, like like the piano gets the first verse, almost like a, a little solo that's in response to the vocals, and then it quiets down, enti- maybe entirely is out, and the guitar kind of gets the next verse. I, li- I liked that interplay. It felt kind of cool, and the piano playing is cool. But so in Elvis's band, you have this guy called Scotty Moore on guitar, you have Bill Black on bass. The guy playing piano is called Shorty Long. And a guy called DJ Fontana on drums. Now, it's worth mentioning that on some of those, when Elvis was first touring in his first, you know, the That's All Right Mama era, it was literally just three guys, no drummer. Bass, guitar, and I think Elvis sometimes on a rhythm guitar and singing. And I think that reflects, that right there reflects a change in how music was being created because country music at the time probably just didn't have a lot of drums on it, right? So when they first start out, they're just this trio that's creating rhythm in this more traditional, almost jug band-like way. And and by the way, we haven't played That's All Right, Mama, but go listen to it by all means. We'll put it on the, uh, on the playlist for you. That one still has some life and some energy to it, too, even without a drummer. It's got some rhythm. It's got some kick to it, right? It's got the washboard. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. actually have the washboard, but that's what I picture when you talk about jug band. It's a guy with a literal, a literal washboard and a rock. Just, I just, and he's in overalls. Yeah, of course. <laughs> just a jug of corn liquor. The, I'm just saying, I that's a that's a oversimplification to, to music that just doesn't have a drum beat, unless the other instruments kind of have to keep a, a more of a chugging beat to them to make any sense, but. Uh, I, I like this song just fine, but yeah, I did think his hiccup singing style was was really in full effect here. They were like, really lean into that one, buddy. You know, one thing I will say, and this is going to come up a couple of times, I'm, I'm going to make this comment on a few different songs, is that the lead guitar is garbage most of the time on these songs. It's not good, but the bass is always pretty damn kicking. I really got to give it to the bass. The bass lines, they're just nice walking bass lines. And maybe that's just a, we've talked about this before, electric guitar was, or guitar in general in these bands was a rhythmic thing for a long time. It was never a lead thing. Anytime there's lead guitar on these songs, I'm like, this seems like a first attempt at guitar solos. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing yet. Yeah. It's really yeah. interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I think it I think it must be at least partially the playing style has not matured. But then again, you know, one of the one of the touchstones I felt the need to look up was Chuck Berry's first single. Because he's a, definitely a progenitor of a new guitar style. And that it's called Maybelline, the song. And that came out before this. 
And I think you hear a little bit of that in his playing, but it's still kind of locked into this weird rhythm-only exercise. I I didn't think it was terribly egregious on this song. There's one other song where I just thought it was complete garbage. Like, how could you leave that on the tape? I think the bass is pretty hot on this song and in the album in in general. And I I just I can't let it pass up. Shorty Long, that's the that's the piano player. That's like the that's the nineteen fifties Biggie Smalls. I love it. It's a great name. Way to go. We need more of this in the universe. This is upper and this this band is an upright bass player, right? Like electric bass was not a thing. Okay. No, definitely not. All right, let's let's roll it along to the next tune called I Love You Because. I love you because you understand Just for contrast, I'll start out by saying that this was one of the ones that was recorded for Sun Records back in 1954. Mm, okay. Ah, uh, yep. yes, you can hear it. That yeah. was my big question is like, was the tape sped up? Was there different recording fidelity? What's going on? Because his voice sounds substantively different on this song. It's way higher. And I was like, is it sped up tape? Is it singing more close to the front of the mouth? Like, I don't know quite what's going on. Maybe he hadn't locked into that over style yet. Yeah, but, is this uh, his actual... Yeah his natural voice before he started mucking around with it. Uh, well, yeah. so he was definitely experimenting with singing. I have two things to say about that. One, he was experimenting with singing styles from an early time. One of the things they talk about is that when he showed up at Sun Records, this is the kind of stuff he wanted to sing, which was ballads, kind of dorkier country ballads. And if you th- look at his career, he got kind of got to those kinds of hits later in his career, he ultimately came back around to singing more ballads and being famous for them. But guys like Sam Phillips and uh, Chet Atkins was one of the guys helping produce the this this record, the RCA recordings of this record at the other studio, were pushing him towards a more rock and roll sound. They didn't feel like, they felt like that style had been done. So even though Elvis liked tunes like this, he was kind of being pushed out of that direction. For, hold on for one second. Chet Atkins was helping to produce some of these songs and he let those guitar solos stand it's hard to Chet Atkins is amazing oh my god you're right that yeah. is that is why would you just jump out from behind the board and be like listen here's how you do it guys come <laughs> just on give, like, me, yeah. give me the goddamn guitar <laughs> yeah that's a good question that's well, a good question the, the the stories i heard about Chet Atkins producing style they were contrasting with Sam Phillips is that Chet Atkins was almost like a Rick a Rick Rubin type at least in in our own podcast estimation and that he kind of sat back and just tried to create an environment where you did you and he didn't really comment that much or try to drive you to anything different whereas sam phillips was like 
work all night, one more take, let's try this thing new. And that that is another thing I wanted to mention about production is that, you know, speaking of singing voice and differences in tone, Sam Phillips was also known, or based on my research, I think he should be known more as a real innovator in the techniques of the studio. So it was a time where it was really common to just be trying to get the live band sound pure and simple. Let's make this sound as much like the concert as possible. Sam Phillips was one of these guys who was trying to do different things and think about the actual recording and how it would come out in that context. So moving microphones around, we're going to talk about on one of the other tracks, he pioneered an early slapback echo effect that he he refused to tell other people about, and it was a while before people really figured out what he was doing. And there was even another story, I think, on that on that other track I mentioned, Rocket 88, which some people say is the first rock and roll track, where, like, the speaker cone of the bass amp tore, and he, and they, they thought the session was over, and he was like, no, no, let me just stick some paper in there, and now, and you got your first fuzz bass sound. Oh, wow. So he was known, he was known for that, for that kind of reaching, and so he might have been messing, you know, pushing Elvis in in some of those directions early on because he had a vision in his head of like hey what is is this new thing we're trying to reach for and when he found it in stuff like that's all right mom he's like hey this is worth releasing you could argue that the reason this was still around a year and a half later for the RCA people to pick up is because Sam Phillips didn't like this he didn't want to release it he didn't think it was really to Elvis's best strengths right but it was still that's why it was on the cutting room floor I have a note on here that this arrangement would have worked so much better as just an acoustic guitar and a voice that lead guitar is completely unnecessary on this song there's no reason for it to be there and it takes away from what you say the verisimilitude like i could picture it much more of just elvis and guitar intimate just the two just the you and him and you throw in that lead guitar which adds nothing and it makes it seem more like a produced good and less like we've talked about it before, like that Iron and Wine album, although highly produced, it does feel like a guy just with an acoustic guitar whispering in your ear the whole time. Yeah. And this would have had a little bit more of that feel had it not been for that unnecessary and not good lead guitar they put in there. Yeah. The super noodly just filling some space. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you a story you've never heard before, which is the band was a little miffed at Elvis's amazing success and how it put them behind <laughs> oh, I can't imagine the spotlight. <laughs> so there might have been some tension going on in the studio. Yeah, my my note on this was I, I like the melody here. I thought the writing wasn't amazing. Like the hook line, I love you most of all because of you is pretty lame. But but <laughs> probably the biggest thing I I noted was I wish I was listening to Harry Belafonte sing this song. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, as a Calypso song. Yeah. This is much better. I'm I'm picturing it in my head right now. You know, yeah. my note on this is I wish I wasn't thinking of my grandparents smashing into this song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is totally like the D'Angelo of the day, right? This is smash music for the 50s set, right? Wow. Well said. <laughs> yeah. Sweetheart, push the beds together. <laughs> Turn on... <laughs> Grab the Elvis album. <laughs> it's going to be a short night. Oh, that's great. Uh, uh, okay, well, <laughs> perfect segue into our next song. Yes. Tutti Fruity. Tutti Fruity. Oh, Rudy. 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 Oh,
But you know just what to do I got a gal named Sue But you know just what to do She rolled me to the east She rolled me to the west She's the gal that I love best To the fruit, oh Rudy 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 I got a gal named Daisy She almost drive me crazy Okay, so just to clarify the timeline before you guys comment, this is a totally unnecessary cover of Little Richard, who wrote the song and had recorded it that before was, this I was came ask out. That. The arrangement right. has not changed, and I assure you, go back and listen. I listened to some Little Richard this week. This tune, Long Tall Sally, they sound awesome still. Oh, yeah. They are legitimate rock and roll, and this is the... Uh, the essence of rock. It's like um, the difference between like drinking watermelon juice and drinking one of those, you know, like seltzers that has a little bit of watermelon flavor in it. Like <laughs> that's what this song is compared to the original Tutti Frutti. Now, my favorite thing that I came up in the research is that Tutti Frutti was written by Little Richard while he was the janitor at a bus station. And I'm picturing Little Richard with his little perv stash and like bedazzled mop, just like rolling around a bus station, like, woo! Some bum just pissed in the corner. You know, I gotta clean it up. Yeah! Like, that was my favorite thing in the world. And then my wife was just like, you know, it was like way more drab than that, right? He was in like just denim coveralls and hating his life the entire time. It's like, let me live in the universe where Little Richard's doing splits while he's cleaning up vomit in the corner over here. This yeah, this one really because it led me to some of those early Little Richard recordings. I was re-impressed, and I was like, I gotta listen to more Little Richard because this stuff still freaking kicks. It rocks. But even just to add to your anecdote, Tom, because I read that one, but I, here's something else I bet you didn't know: is that they had to tone down from the original lyrics, and that Richard, Little Richard has confirmed that this song is in fact about gay sex. Yes, it is. Really? Tutti Fruity, good booty. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The original lyrics, it, well, the original lyrics are debated, but here's one of the versions. Tutti Fruity, if it don't fit, you can make it. Yeah. And they were like, this is too Wait. hot to handle. <laughs> yeah. Wait, Little Richard was gay? <laughs> Flamboyant, okay? Yes. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, you guys know that there's a musician named Jacob Collier who's just on another planet, but occasionally he drops these little uh, Instagram videos that are titled something like when you only have eight seconds to impress the band leader. You're talking about that bass player guy? It, uh, well, no, he's a keyboard player, oh, okay. but, he, but he puts out these videos and it's like a, a remark, some trombone solo that crushes it for eight seconds or a guitar player that does something crazy. In my mind, Jacob Collier wrote a an Instagram post for this song that says when you only get 11 seconds to shit the bed on a song on guitar because mm. <laughs> this solo is absolutely atrocious and I wonder if this is the guitar player sticking it to Elvis like oh you're famous here's a little something I'll leave on your album <laughs> for the rest of time <laughs> So, 
I agree. It's completely, completely embarrassing to all of recorded music. (laughs) It could have been what you said. It could have also been that Elvis apparently in the studio was like moving on, moving on, like on to the next thing and didn't think because they because they didn't show up in the studio trying to get a specific set of songs. They in these sessions that we're talking about. This was one of the RCA sessions, the later sessions. They ran through three times as many tunes, maybe five times as many tunes, right? Trying to figure out what could work, and they really didn't know. And then later, the record executives compiled them into singles and albums. And so I think there was the kind of move, move it along. I like Elvis was like, I felt good on that one, move, moving on. And uh, I should mention too that these same recording sessions were ultimately compiled for his second release. Hmm. Right, so so a lot of stuff was recorded at the same time, but then it was just kind of compiled piecemeal. So you got no real sense of album consistency, and we, you know, we've talked about this before that the concept of an album being one thing that hung together just wasn't, certainly wasn't as prevalent uh, in this day as it as it became in in with the Beatles in the '60s and on into the '70s. So that's one of the things going on here. I'm also I'm just putting myself in the studio and like let's say this is the third take and again the guitar player just has a bad a bad take we've all been in that situation I had joined a band and the first gig with them there's a solo in this Carrie Underwood song before he cheats it's a little piano solo it's it's easy doing it live I totally screw up like I do it like a half note off and it's just atrocious and like your face gets red and the rest of the band is not looking at you because they know you just destroyed it right and I'm picturing the song ending and somebody comes up and says hey we're printing that and you like, you, have to, you have to finish the gig like oh my god what the hell have I done well so, at least sorry. the guitar player We'll be able to have find some solace in the fact that it is still way better than the Pat Boone version of this song that was released the same year. Which, do yourselves a favor and go listen to that. If you think this version is toothless compared to Little Richard, like <laughs> it makes like the Pat Boone version makes this seem like black metal or something like that. It's like so <laughs> intense compared to the Pat Boone version. It's the lamest damn thing in the world. Released in the same exact year, which is totally just it's cash grab. It's I get it. People just didn't listen to black artists at the time, and it's a sh- it's really a shame to their detriment. Certainly, there was good music coming out. Like Rob, like you said, I listened to a lot of Little Richard stuff these days. Little Richard's effing awesome. There is a great video, and I, I god damn it, I can't remember off the top of my head which artist it was, but it's an American Bandstand clip. And they are introducing this song, and they're like, "Hey, everybody, welcome th- this guy whose name I can't remember," and. Everybody starts going crazy, and they're like, yeah, and like the song starts playing, and then the curtain opens up, and it's a black guy, and everybody's like, oh, no, and you can watch everybody in the crowd stop cheering, and they're just oh like, oh, no, nope, nope, I loved this Shut song until up. I found out that it was a black guy who was singing it, and like, I'm sure that was a total thing back in the day, but like, how could yeah. you listen to the little Richard Tutti Frutti and then listen to the Elvis Tutti Frutti and be like, well, this is clearly better. This is the one I should be listening to. Like, this is how I should spend my money. They, I heard an anecdote that when Elvis used to go on those southern white segregated radio stations to play the track, they, they weren't 
allowed to ask to say that he was white on the air, but the DJs wanted it to be clarified for the audience, so they would simply ask him where he went to school, and then he would say where he went to high school, and they knew it was an all-white school, and that that allowed them to like like the material. Wow. Oh, America, you've never done anything wrong at all. <laughs> one, one more little tidbit about this tune that I dug up is that the wop bop a bop is supposed to be Little Richard voicing the drum part that he hears in his head. Yeah. Hell yeah, yeah, Little Richard. Yeah, I like that. Again, I, like I, I cannot stress bit. enough, Little Richard is the shit. Like, the, the um, yeah. uh, slipping and a sliding, peeping and a hiding is one of my favorite songs. I listen to it all the time. I've talked to you about this before, Adam. Like, I listen to it with my kids because it's really raucous. Yeah, And they all right. run around the house and every once in a while they go, woo! And it's like, yeah, all right. <laughs> Perfect kid fodder. It's very frenetic and very up tempo and very, you know, exciting. As opposed to the next song we're gonna listen to. <laughs> we didn't put it on our focus list, but Elvis also does "I've Got a Woman," which is basically a cover of a Ray Charles song on the same record. And the ex- I would give a lot of the same notes, which is Ray Charles is great, and Elvis like, what are you doing? The guy already owns the song. Yeah, like, don't bother. Right. Kanye's career would have went way different <laughs> if he had used the Elvis version as the backing track for that tune. I feel like Rob, it's right. like uh, you've said before. It's like trying to cover a Nina Simone song. It's like she already owns it. Just give it up. Yeah, that's hers. Yeah, just give. Even it up. if it's yeah, your song, songs. even if it's your song, she already owns it. It's done. <laughs> some songs are not meant to be re- reinterpreted. But but uh, what I'm saying is, in all these cases too, they don't even really bother to change the arrangement too much. So that's. You know, that's a knock against them. But, nice segue into the last song on our focus list. Blue Moon. Blue Moon You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart This one was from the Sun Recordings back from 1954, and just because I suspect you might ask if you didn't look it up, the version of Blue Moon, the song that you know best, is by the Marcells and was released in 1961, so seven years after this. That doo-wop version is seven years after this. Wow. Yeah, because that's the one I know. So wait, are you sure it's called Blue Moon and a blue... Because is that what he says for the like? I could not tell if for the f- the first thing that he says at the beginning of the song is it the word blue, is it the word moon, or is it the word bloom? Because he definitely <laughs> does not enunciate two separate words. So this to me, this was probably my favorite find on the record because at least to me, it's a very interesting arrangement. It's sort of a worthy 
thing to try, at least based on the versions I had had, had had heard before. Turns out there are many, many, many recorded versions of this tune that I'm not familiar with. I was familiar with that doo version we just mentioned. It was originally written in the 30s by Rodgers and Hart of musical fame. Rodgers wow. went on to also pair with Hammerstein and write Sound of Music and a bunch of things. So, and I think it was originally intended for a movie that like never got made, or at least the song didn't get used. But anyway, it's been covered, it's been done many, many times. But I thought, oh, this is kind of new, this is interesting, it's a song I kind of know. And not only that, but it was a very weird pared down arrangement. Like, is he doing, sounds like he's just kind of hitting the acoustic guitar for percussion, and maybe kind of going over the electric strings, but there's like a sponge dampening everything. I'm just saying there were weird, interesting choices made, and that's why I liked it. No, this is a fantastic minimalist arrangement. I do wonder, you had talked before about different studio magic treatments, and when he starts doing the part, it almost sounds like it's double-tracked. Is that the slapback that you're talking about? Or is that yeah. getting picked up on a separate mic in the room or something? No. So they didn't... Yeah, they had so little Studio Magic back then. But so Sam Phillips's thing was back in 54, right around this time, he acquired... He had two tape machines. What? And so he started playing around with what you could do with two tape machines. And the echo that you're talking about, and this song's a pretty good example of it, is when you record one to one tape machine's record head while also recording the playback, which is usually the vocals. So you get this like tape delay. It's like a post effect. It's not a recorded effect. Mm. And the physical space between the heads of the machines makes for this audible delay and echo, which at the time was like a very unique and iconic sound. And that became one of Sam Phillips like signatures to the point where when later when Elvis got bought out by RCA and was in the RCA studio a year and a half later, they were like, how do we get that sound? And Elvis was like, I have no freaking clue. And they even called Sam Phillips and he was like, nope, not telling you guys. <laughs> so they then they started experimenting and they started do, trying to do stuff that was more physically oriented where they used a hallway with two mics at the end of it ah, and things okay. like that. Okay. You know? But it's just, I, I think it's interesting because it is just an interesting, a lot had to be innovated. Now there's so many more uh, tricks like that, not to you know, physical tricks, not to mention plugins. Right. But Sam Phillips was definitely an innovator. Yeah. That's cool because the priority up until then was just, let's get, let's just record. Cause it's hard enough as is, and then to take that and to turn it into how can we be artistic with the recording, which is a very cool kind of mile marker in terms of, like you said, 56, 57 or whatever, that that's where that started to creep into the, the recording industry. So that's very cool. Well, that's also that's something you don't, you don't experiment with that on your second time in the studio, your third time running a studio. You experiment with that like your 40th or 50th time running a recording <laughs> session where you're like, I know how to do all of the basic things, and we're going to capture that no matter what. So let's see what else we can layer on top of it. It's a professionalism of the craft, which is it's appreciated. And it, it, I, I'd say it shines through on this because it's very subtle, but it is definitely an effect that you can tell is not just him sitting in front of a mic and it gives it an eeriness this kind of weird creepy off like not it's not off-putting but it is um just the off-timeness of it makes it seem like there's something special going on absolutely i am glad that you gave me credit that the version of blue moon that i'm familiar with 
was the one that you were talking about from like the early 1960s and not the one from the Babe soundtrack where the mice are singing Blue Moon because that is 1,000% what I hear in my head every time I hear the song Blue Moon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't follow that up. Let's let's bring this thing home. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's bring it home. Now what you've all been waiting for is where we vote individually log our voices on the official record is Elvis Presley's first full-length release self-titled as Elvis Presley a must hear before you die Tom I'm gonna invoke this rule a couple of times on the podcast I think but if in the time that it takes me to preheat an oven and cook a frozen pizza I can listen to the entirety (laughs) of your album it's pretty much a guaranteed yes you should listen to this album (laughs) it's also good there's also some good stuff on it he's trying some stuff you you can hear again a lot of threads come off of this work but it's just so short like why not it's really not that much of an imposition to listen to this album and it doesn't have his hits on it that's what's so weird about it to me (laughs) yeah i'll agree with that you gotta listen to elvis this is good this is fun man it was uh Interesting to hear a lot of songs that I had heard by other artists and to hear either his take on it or just just to hear it coming out of uh, Elvis's mouth. So, yeah, you should listen to this. So I was really torn on this one because I don't think it's very successful as an album. I think there are several unnecessary covers. Yes, I totally agree that Elvis is a must-listen-to artist, and, you, you know, he has such an intimidatingly large career. You might be looking for a way in, and this is a reasonable way. Ultimately, I'll vote yes for some of the reasons you all described, which is it's very short. And you do get this window into the very, very early Elvis, that 1954 Elvis that we talked about. And because we haven't really maybe fully broached the topic of maybe Elvis is just best served as a greatest hits artist. In, in cases like this, where you actually do, in other words, I do not think you should go your life without listening to Heartbreak Hotel or That's Alright Mama, but to my knowledge, they are on no, those, those original versions, those original studio versions are not on any Elvis record. So that seems very strange to me right off the bat, but that's just a vestige of how the music industry was. It's a short record. You do have some good stuff on there. So go for it. Elvis, congratulations, buddy. So... I I think I'm just now figuring out that there are no greatest hits albums on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Even though I believe that the Eagles greatest hits might be one of like the top five selling albums of all time. Yeah. um, And still not on the list, which I can, I can respect that policy. That policy is like, you know, you you have to have come in with some kind of vision or whatever, you know, even though this we said didn't. Right. I would think the premise there would be that they were compiled by someone other than the artist and not necessarily intended to go together. But if we were, you know, and which, which would be a reasonable thing to say artistically about the list. But in that case, this album falls into that same category. Elvis wasn't like, these songs should go in this order, or even I'm going to record these songs in this session or series of sessions. So that's why I was conflicted about it personally. But okay, if you want to know a little more about Elvis, it was certainly a fun journey for for me to learn about this era of music. And it, it's, of course, tied in with the, the history of music and the music recording industry in general. So a lot of, lot of rich history there. Okay, I believe all that's left is to look ahead 
to what we're going to be listening to next week. Well, this week we are actually not going to bust out the Albinator. What, what, what? Yeah, I know. It's kind of a little bit crazy, but... We have a holiday coming up, everybody, as I'm sure you all are aware. And so we want to do something a little bit special, a little bit uh, spooky, if you will. (laughs) And we are going to be diving into what I actually believe is the number one selling album of all time, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Yes. So, I'm sure we'll have very little to say about that. Expect a 15-minute episode where we go, nah, it's okay. Not a lot going on. And then we move on. No clunkers no, there. No. Well, I mean, yeah. listen, that is a different question as to whether or not it is a fantastic album. But I agree. There's not. It's not a solid front-to-back hit. So what's the... Uh, the Girl Is Mine? Is that the... That's the one that's the, the notable shit storm on this album? Oh my god, I love that tune. <laughs> With Paul? It's awesome. It's terrible. It's great. Well, how could Paul do right, wrong? Exactly. Well, you, well, stay tuned for that, yeah, right. that fight next week. Well, you know, Michael, this song's terrible. I know, Paul. This sucks. Well, that should be exciting. I am looking forward yeah. to that thrilling album. Hey. <laughs> well done. <laughs> So, well, with that, it's been another lovely week, lovely conversation, lovely exploration of the recorded musical canon. If you like what we're doing here, shoot us over a subscribe or a rating or just tell a friend. That's the best way to get this out to the music nerds of the world of which we consider ourselves a part. And if you want to write us in and tell us what we got wrong or right, it's 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's all for this week. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. Now I'm Adam. Boo-boo. <laughs>